Welcome to the Westminster Chapel podcast. For more information and to support our mission to London and beyond, please visit westminsterchapel.org.uk. Jesus clears the temple courts. John 2 verses 13 to 25. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep and doves and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then responded to him. What sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you are going to raise it in three days. But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said and they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Now while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. Hi there, it's great to see you. My name is Howard. I'm one of the pastors here at Westminster Chapel and everyone is welcome here at our church. You're joining us in week five of this series. We've called it Amazing Love and it is a exploration into the first century biography about the person of Jesus written by one of his closest followers, a man called John. In this era of life that we live in, where most of us are so often misunderstood, we have here an invitation to truly be known and to truly know God. At a time when there's so much loneliness around, we have here an invitation from God himself to friendship, friendship with God. It's the extraordinary promise that Jesus makes in John chapter 15, to be his friend. It's an invitation to put your head on Jesus' chest, a place of privilege to hear the very heartbeat of God. I wonder what that would sound like. Have you ever thought of that? What does his heart beat for? Well, that's the summary, really, of this message, and we see an answer to that in this passage. It's the burning heart of God beats with holy love to cleanse you from inner corruption, to liberate you from oppressive religion, to bring about a renewal 
revolution. In this chapter that began um, a few weeks back when we looked at it, chapter 2, we are introduced first to a God of joy at a wedding in Cana. A God who comes and his first miracle, he wants to keep the party going. He turns water into top-notch wine because otherwise there would be the shame and humiliation in this first century Palestine part of the world where hospitality meant everything, that it would all come crushing to a halt and they would be so full of shame, the hosting family. Jesus doesn't want that, so he turns water into wine. And not just a few little bit of wine, but 600 to 1,000 Bottles of wine is the amount. It's abundance of what? Abundance of mercy. Because the wine is a picture of his blood that will be shed on the cross and then will be remembered in this communion meal of these elements, the broken body, the bread and the shed blood, the wine. Forgiveness of sins. That he take our shame away and give us joy. So if the first half of this chapter is about God's crazy kindness, the second half of chapter 2 is about God's righteous anger. We are a little bit like um, the children from Narnia. Um, maybe you know them, um, the Pevensey children in that moment when they're being introduced to Aslan. Um, they've been told about him, this great lion, this terrifying, intimidating lion. <laughs> what is he like? And maybe you know the line. And uh, Mr. Beaver says to them, they ask, is he safe? Safe, they say. He's not safe. But he is good. He's the king, I tell you. I think we have a little slide with that one on. Um, we'll get to that in a moment. But there's this idea, Jesus is coming and he's coming with the whip. And yet he's like a roaring liar. That he's not safe. That he is good. How does that make sense if God is both love and kindness? If he's both also wrath and anger? How do these two come together like that? Some people would feel that God is angry. So he can't be nice. He can't be good. That's an ugly aspect of God's character and his nature. Let me tell you a little bit, though, about that, to put that in some context first. Um, something that I get angry about is when we're on car journeys and... and uh, we turn at a corner or we hit a bump in the road and I might be listening and really enjoying a podcast or a story or um, like there's some narrative or music or something like that and our CD player suddenly kicks in and, and plays. Now we'd be running off like the auxiliary to our iPod or to a mobile phone, something like that. But then suddenly the CD player kicks into play and for like a, a good few seconds it's just blank silence and you, you lost where you are and then it comes back on again basically every time you sort of turn a corner like that that's what happens it's really annoying and you're like oh I cut out and often it does that at the moment you're like oh I was really interested what's going to happen silence silence and then it picks up the story later you're like oh I've missed it now it does that because um, a certain parent me um, <laughs> was in charge of a certain child I shan't say the name of them uh, when they were playing in our car and they put 50p into the CD drive <laughs> and we've never managed to get it back out again and so basically every time it moves around it, 
It does stuff to our car. And that makes me a little bit angry because I enjoy, I like, maybe even to some small measure I love, listening to stories and sermons uninterrupted. But if you raise the scale of that, if you raise the stakes of that, there are some things that I love much more that are going to make me more angry. For example, this incredibly beautiful woman on your screen who happens to be my wife, right? If, if somebody hurts her, if someone offends her, if somebody does something that's not nice to her, you're going to discover, it doesn't matter how big they are, you know, right, however impressive, it doesn't matter to me, you're going to discover that, as Yoda says, size matters not. I am coming for you, right? You're in trouble. You've annoyed my wife. I love my wife. You've made me really angry by hurting her. I'm going to come and, if I'm not restrained by God, that is, <laughs> something's going to happen. Do you get the point? Anger flows out of what you love. And the more that you love something, the more angry you're going to get about it. And so it is with God. But his emotions are not rash, but they're righteous. In this story, as Jesus is getting a whip and he's turning tables and he's expressing righteous anger, but it's not rash, it's thoughtful, it's premeditated, it's considered. Think how long it would have taken him just to go buy the materials and then make and weave this cord together to make the whip. You don't do that quickly. You didn't just go, let me just buy a whip. And No, no there's something sustained, consistent, considered, thoughtful about the emotions that are revealed of God. His emotions are not rash. They are righteous. And you might want to ask the question then, what so angers God's heart? Or let's put it another way. What does he love so much that makes him so angry that it's being hurt, harmed, or damaged here? The first answer I want to give to you is that it's you. If you're a believer and you're a follower of Jesus, you're called to be one of his followers, it's you. You are a temple of the Holy Spirit. It's what another one of Jesus' followers wrote about. That you yourself, individually, you're the temple that God wants to dwell in. And then secondly, it's his church. The church is the temple of living stones. Peter described it like that, another follower of Jesus. And he's saying that they come together around the cornerstone, that is Jesus, to be a temple filled with the Holy Spirit and the very presence of God. What does God love so much that he gets angry about you and his church and his people? He wants to liberate, protect us, you, from that which would cause harm, that would damage you. So he loves you. That's what this whole scene is about. His zeal for you. But before we get into what does he want to liberate you from, some specifics about that, just a word maybe for people who are here who kind of go, I'm not sure if I can trust this um, documentary account. You said it was from the first century. I'm not sure about that. Can I really trust the Bible? 
I just want to say to you, I have been there. I became a Christian when I was 21 years old. I was a law student. I had loads of questions about the reliability of this faith, and I wanted to investigate that. And so quite often when I'm speaking, I drip in little things that give us confidence that what we're looking at here is reliable eyewitness testimony to the events that took place in Palestine in the first century. And I've mentioned before the John Rylands fragment, that the earliest copy of the scriptures that we have comes from about John chapter 18, and it is um, from 125 AD. It's in a museum in Manchester, and it dates so early to these events taking place that it was written down, that it's before exaggeration and embellishment over time, all of that Chinese whisper stuff could go on. You can't do that. It's just got an accuracy to it. Then we've mentioned the names. The names that are referred to in the account are accurate for the first century and for this part of the world, even to the point of differentiating which are the most popular names at that time. Like the name Simon was now we know the most popular, so he can differentiate. It has to be Simon Peter, Simon the son of, Simon the tanner, so that you know which Simon you're talking about because it's such a common name. First century eyewitness knowledge, the same with geography. There are 22 stories in John's Gospel. Every one of them has an accurately recorded geographical place name for that time, for that part of the world. That's massive. And then here, we get this really great little clue here, where it's all about um, topography. You can see it already. It's about going up and coming down. Now, normally when we speak of that, I might be say, I live in Brighton, and I would say, I am going up to London. It's like a compass bearing, isn't it? But here it's in reverse. Did you notice that? The language went down to Capernaum, yet Capernaum is above Jerusalem. doesn't make sense to us. Unless you lived in the first century and you knew the detail that it's about topography, it's about altitude and descent. Do you get that? It's about the geography. The Jerusalem is, is higher. You have to go up towards it. Like physically, it's not a, it's not a compass direction. You, you had to live at the time that this was being written to know that kind of detail, that kind of fact. This is a reliable account. You can trust it. Now I said, God wants to liberate us from some things. And I use that word liberate very deliberately because this passage is underpinned by the exodus. You see that in verse 13 and in verse 23, that the Passover festival is talked about. And it's like bookends, either end of this passage, the beginning and at the end of this very section. It's drawing our attention to the Exodus story. The Exodus story, this historical event where God rescues his people out of slavery and tyranny in Egypt. Under oppression of Pharaoh, awful conditions. God sees their suffering. He cares. He sends Moses, human agency, to bring rescue. It's really interesting to me that God doesn't just work randomly like that. He works through people. That's why the church matters so much. If you want to experience his blessing, you've got to be operating in around the means by which he delivers his blessing, which is through human agency. He sends Moses, and miracles are performed, and the sea is parted, and they are rescued out of all of that suffering and tyranny. That is the backdrop, not just to this passage, but to the whole story of God, that he seeks to bring liberation and freedom and rescue from oppression out into joy and life. What particular things? Well, there are two particular things that he wants to liberate us from. 
And there are examples, I think, of where people try to uh, attempt to play God's good music, but in an appallingly bad way, horribly out of tune. You might call it the screeching cat rendition of Christianity. It's awful. One of my great fears, it didn't happen today because we swapped the microphone, but when you're preaching here, you wear the microphone during the first part of the worship in the service. One of my personal fears is that the tech team, or Matt's saying he can actually hear me singing. Oh, no. <laughs> one of the band. But like one of my, that's one of my fears, is that the congregation, that I'm going to ruin the whole set. I can't sing. It's going to be awful. And this great song is going to be sung and ruined out of tune by this guy who's muscling in on the talented, gifted worship band. It's awful, right? And that's often what happens, I think, in Christian history. And we see it here, even in the temple, the people of God are trying to sing God's good music, but awfully out of tune, and it grates. And it's the same for the Crusades, and it's the same for the Spanish Inquisition. God wants to liberate us from this, because he loves us, and he wants to make room for his presence, his life. For his love to be known, for you to know his love. The first thing that he wants to cleanse out of his church is consumeristic Christianity. It's a kind of transactionalism, a commercialism that's going on. Here they were, they were buying and selling and exchanging in the temple courts around uh, and they were making profit. They were taking a cut of money off others who were coming in to worship, prophet in the place of prayer. That's what they were doing. They thought they were maybe even doing the right thing, helping people to worship. But it was, it was awful. Jesus is going to condemn them in a parallel passage. Now, Bible geeks, I'm sorry, I'm not going to tell you my view on whether there are two cleansings or one cleansing that's described in different points. Sorry if this is all new to you. I'm not going there. But I do think the parallel passage helps us understand this one in Mark's biography where Jesus condemns them. Mark chapter 11, verse 17. Jesus condemns and said, this is, the temple is to be a house of prayer for all nations. And you've made it a den of thieves, of robbers. Wow. Ouch. Ouch. Pay this, buy that, go there, move over that way. Right, next, over here, conveyor belt of religion, keep going, on and on. Okay, you're done. Next, on here, boom, boom, boom. What? God wants intimacy, relationship, closeness. He doesn't want religious transactionalism. God is not a slot machine. The gospel is not a product to be sold. What's in it for me is not the primary question that a Christian should live their life by. I wonder if God hasn't been cleaning house in recent years of celebrity pastors who've lost their way and have got caught up with personal gain. Mark Driscoll, Bill Heidel's, 
Ravi Zacharias, Carl Lentz, the list goes on. And there but for the grace of God go I. I'm not famous like them. Thank you, God. But I do face the same temptations that they do. To steal glory. To be a robber, to be a thief. To steal glory that belongs only to God. To keep it for myself. To cover up my own insecurity. To gain approval and love. To be seen to be, oh, isn't he good? Isn't he impressive? Oh, he's just amazing. You kind of want that sometimes as a leader. It's a real temptation that's, that's there. So suddenly I'm caught up in what they're doing. I've consumerized and commercialized the Christian faith to something that I get from it, not his glory. Or I can approach like church services and Bible conferences and I'll hear myself starting to talk about them like I might critique a show on Netflix. I'd give it six out of ten. Take it or leave it. Wasn't very uplifting, the worship this morning. Oh, the coffee is just horrible. Have they not heard of New Acre Cafe and Old Spike? You know. What about you? What about you? We can all get on our moral high horse, can't we? And like, oh, they're so bad there. Commercial churches, prosperity gospel over there, celebrity pastor over there. But we'd be hypocrites if we don't examine our own hearts. Are you in this Christianity thing for yourself or for God? Is your relationship with God, has it become transactional, business-like? I'll do this for you, God, if you do this for me. God, I did this for you, now you owe me. Are there things that God wants to drive out of your heart because he loves you? he wants to protect you because he wants to make room for his presence and for his power and for his glory to come that you might know him truly truly know and be known by him Jesus describes the temple here he calls it my father's house place of Relationship, my father, intimacy, closeness, nearness, a place to abide, a place to be and find acceptance. Jesus wants to be your friend, not some kind of distant car insurance salesman or insurance salesman for the afterlife. He, he wants to really know you. Will you let him in? Will you make room? That's the first thing he wants to get rid of from the church today, consumeristic Christianity. The second thing is compassionless Christianity. You see, the selling or exchanging was all happening in the outer court area of the temple. And this was the place where women and non-Jewish people, Gentiles, that's really predominantly all of us here today, could come and meet with God. That was, the, that was our place. That was the place to come and pray and to, to, to have access to God that we were allowed into. And here they were blocking access, taking up all the space, the noise and ruckus and making profit and all that stuff, blocking access, preventing, being exclusive, not caring about others. It was all about them and their own lives and their goings on. They may as well put a big sign up saying, women and foreigners not welcome, get lost. You get some idea now why Jesus is a little bit angry 
Because right back at the beginning, Genesis chapter 12, he gave a promise to a man who was then called Abraham. And he said, "Um, God's going to bless you. I'm going to bless you, Abraham, so that you and your family line are going to be a blessing to people of what? All nations. Not never just the Jews. And then Jesus, when he quotes, he quotes from Isaiah chapter 56 verse 7. And he's saying about the den of robbers and being a house of prayer for all nations. And the whole of Isaiah chapter 56 is about God's heart for salvation to come to foreigners. To people not of the Jews. That's God's heart. He longs for people of all different types to be saved. He hates it when we get exclusive and cliquely and tribal and unwelcoming. And it makes me wonder. Who are the kinds of people that we exclude? Who are the kinds of people that we might be blind to through our own prejudices that we're not very welcoming to, that we neglect, that we're not considering? Who are the people that we ignore because we're so preoccupied with our own needs and our own wants that we're just not paying attention to the call of God? It's just so easy, I think, to drift from the mission of God and to make church about us. This is our gathering. We'll run this service how how we like it, thank you very much. And we forget that we exist for the people outside this room. We exist to reach the city of London. We have been blessed that we might be a blessing beyond this place. One of the examples I think of, uh, one of the reveals of when we can get caught up in this kind of way of thinking is given to us in this passage. And it's when we get into sort of thinking on a very earthly plane that that sort of matter is all there is kind of way of thinking about life. Um, And that's what the Jews did here. Jesus makes this incredibly radical statement. He's like, you want a sign? I tell you a sign. You're going to destroy this temple and it'll be rebuilt in three days. And they just don't get it. They don't understand the plane that Jesus is commuting on. They are here and now people, earthly minded people. They are bricks and mortars people. All they see is matter, reality before them. That's it. They can't get to that. There's something higher, something greater. Your eyes are being lifted beyond that. And we live in a culture where we are just constantly conditioned to think only in this secularized society. Matter is all there is. Now, they used to have a phrase, didn't they, that this person is of no earthly good because he's too heavenly minded. That is totally reversed in our generation. We're so earthly minded and preoccupied on this sort of horizontal plane that we're of little heavenly good because we just don't understand. You just don't make sense, Jesus. And we're saying the same things that the Jews are saying here. No, what are you talking about? It's going to take 46, it took 46 years to build this temple, Jesus. Three days, that's rubbish. You must be crazy. And that's often, I think, a little picture of how we live the Christian life. I had a conversation with someone who's not yet a believer Last Sunday, actually, we were out witnessing on the streets, and um, I saw that he had this amazing tattoo of DNA, and it had like a, a musical script in between with notes and stuff like that. So I started to, to converse about that. That's a really fascinating tattoo, and we got talking. And at one point, he tried to explain music to me, music, on the basis of physics alone. It was just a vibration. It's like, okay, so I said to him, how do you know if a piece of music is beautiful or ugly? You could just see him stop and draw breath for a moment. He didn't know how to answer the question. 
His reductionist worldview had no way of expressing that. And so I pushed a little bit further and said, do you think love then is just a chemical reaction or is there something more to life? Just bringing him to a point of tension. I wonder if we were more heavenly minded, if we had more of the mind of Christ, how much more we, how much more you would understand. The moment of revelation comes for these disciples. Did you notice when? Verse 22, after Jesus had been raised from the dead, after the resurrection. That's key. Jesus is saying the only way to make sense really of life and reality, the only way to make sense of why you hear what's going on with life, what's your purpose in life, what's your call in life, is him. He's at the center of everything. He's the cornerstone. And if you don't have him at the center, then your thinking will fall apart. It's like a puzzle. Imagine you were putting together a puzzle and you don't have the picture on the box to copy. What do you do? If you're trying to do that, well, you find the four corners, don't you? You get the corner pieces, because they're unique, there's only four of them, and you build out from that, because they then start to map in, and you start to see reality. You start to understand the world and the way it is. So you're not stuck in this matter is all there is. You're not stuck living only in a material world. You can see more when you get the four corners of spiritual reality, which is Jesus came. The incarnation of God, he took on flesh, which is then, it's Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross. Then you have the corner down here, Jesus' resurrection, and then the corner here, which is Jesus' ascension, which releases then the coming of the Holy Spirit in power to build his church. God doesn't want to leave you with second best. He doesn't want to leave you stuck in thinking in only a material world. He wants to lift your gaze so you might know more about him. That's why he came. That's why he died. That's why he rose again. That's why he then poured out the Holy Spirit on his people to then transform the world so that today one third of the world's population claim to believe in Jesus. Because of what we're talking about happening around 2,000 years ago. People do not die for a good person, typically. People aren't willing really to give their lives even for a clever and interesting prophet. But they died because they had seen Jesus killed and raised from the dead. They met him alive, back from the dead. And they went, wow, you are God. You've overcome death. I'm willing to follow you. And if they kill me, I'm safe because I'll go to be with you. Because you've got the answer to death. Wow. God wants you to know the full truth, to have access to his presence, to see things the way they really are. He wants to remove from our hearts today consumerism, selfishness, commercialism, compassionless apathy. Why? Because he loves. And he wants to make room for his loving presence, for his power, for his glory to come. How is he going to do that? Is he going to get the whip out and kind of like, is it going to be like, you've got to do this, do that, I'm going to whip you into submission, church, you people. Well, the whip doesn't fall on us, does it? If you know the biblical story, the whip falls on him. He was whipped to within an inch of his life before he was crucified on the cross to become a sin offering, to pay the penalty for our sins so that the anger 
and the wrath, the just wrath that our sin deserves fell on him so it wouldn't come on us. It's that you might know the zeal, the red hot intensity of his love for you to protect you from sin, to protect you from evil, to protect you from harm. And in these days, he's looking for people to entrust with his presence. That's what he says in verse 24. He's looking for people to be near to, to pour out his presence on. Who are those kinds of people? Well, it's not the people who love the sign more than the Savior. It's not the people who say, I love you, Jesus, but I also love this as well. I love my reputation. I love what you can do for my career. I love what you can do for my bank account. I love what you can do with my relationships. And then when one of those things is taken away, their faith starts to falter because it was never Jesus alone. It was Jesus plus something else. It wasn't just him. And the radical challenge for us in this generation is that God is looking for people who are Christ is enough for me. He's enough. Yes, it hurts if all that other stuff is taken away from me, but if I am his and he is mine, I have everything. He is everything. It's people who don't want to profit out of their faith in Jesus. It's people who just want his person in their lives. God wants to cleanse our hearts of whatever idols, whatever things may be in there, in the way. And verse 25 says that he knows. He knows right now where you're sat. He knows what is blocking fully the manifestation of his presence in your life and in this church. He knows it. Do you know it? Will you own it? Will you bring it before him? Will you confess it to him so that he can cleanse you from it and make room for his spirit? He comes in love, not to condemn, but to make room, to make room for his spirit, to make room for his power, to make room for his life, to make room for his joy. He comes not with the whip of the temple, but with the love of the cross. And if we do that, if we make room for him, if you make room for him, more room, Oh wow, what might happen? His glory will come and he will fill the church with his presence. Hundreds and hundreds of lives will be transformed. Because we're real. We're authentic. We're not faking it. It's not about religion for us. It's about relationship, intimacy with the awesome, almighty, powerful God who seeks to call us friends. Christ is enough for me. Will he be enough for you? The burning heart of God beats with holy love to cleanse us from inner corruption, to liberate you from oppressive religion, to bring about a renewal 
revolution. Lord, we just thank you so much that your grace is abundant. Your mercy is extraordinary. Your forgiveness knows no end. Seventy times seven. If we confess our sins, you promise you will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all, all unrighteousness. And Lord, we're coming before you today asking you to clean out the temple of our hearts, the temple of this church, the temple of the church in this nation, that we might all make room for your spirit to come in power, for your glory to come, that we might be filled up with your presence, that many, many more lives might come in to encounter you, to fall at your feet and say, you are God, and that Christ is enough for me. He's so good. He's so loving. He's done everything. Every spiritual blessing. I am adopted. I am secure in love. I have an eternity ahead of me. Nothing can separate me from this. Lord, make these truths real for us. Cleanse us. Clean us out. So that we can delight in you more. And reveal more and more of your glory to this needy listening to sermon audio from Westminster Chapel. If you'd like to partner with us in making disciples and sharing the gospel, please consider making a one-off or regular donation. Visit westminsterchapel.org.uk forward slash giving to find out how.